I am thrilled that you are here. Look at all these backpacks up here for our schools for Southwest. Way to go. And I want to talk about schools in just a second. But I have a question for you to begin with, okay? It's just us now. What's the worst thing that you have ever done in your life? I'll give you a second to think about it. For some of y'all, it should come quite easily. Besides coming to service, what's the worst thing you ever come? I thought I'd just kind of come out in the audience with a mic. We could just stand up and share. Could we? No, no I'm not going to do that. Since it is Southwest Schools Sunday, I read about an event that may, very well may qualify for that. As a prank, some students in another state recently uh, pulled something off that has got national attention. They let loose some students three energetic pigs in their high school. They turned them loose. Each pig had a number painted on its side with non-toxic paint, and the numbers were one, two, and four. This is what the students did. And so confusion reigned supreme because the school staff took four hours to realize there's just three pigs, <laughs> even though there's four numbers. Don't try this at any Southwest schools. That's what I'm saying. So I don't know what the worst thing you would consider you, yourself to have done in your life. Some of us are younger, some of us are older. Some of us who are older here, we kind of got a whole history of stuff that we could put on the list. Some of us are younger, we're still figuring out what the worst thing is. Our parents probably told us, this is the worst thing you've ever done. A lot of us, we, when we have kids and then they do something bad, all our parents love to say it. I, my prayer has come true. I hope you have kids treat you just like you treated me. Oh, our grandparents love to say that. I don't know what you've done, but I have a second question. Is there anybody here who believes or thinks that they have committed a sin so bad, whatever it was that you just said in your mind, is there anybody here who believes that sin is so bad that God cannot forgive it? That it might even be in the category of the unpardonable sin. Maybe you stole something and no one's ever t found out about it, but you've been bearing that guilt for a long time and you don't know if God can forgive you. M maybe you ripped somebody off. M maybe you bet on baseball. That's like the unpardonable sin, right? But maybe it's quite more serious than that. Maybe it was a divorce. Maybe it was an affair. And it was quite a scandalous one. Maybe it's been a secret one and no one but you and God and that other party know. Maybe it was something like an abortion. And every day, especially in January, National Right to Life Day, you say, oh, th th no one knows it, but I did that. And I feel so horrible about it. Maybe it's even murder. You know, there are people who've done that. My buddy Ray Tibbetts committed murder. While high, he didn't even remember it, but I visited him multiple times on death row. He's a forgiven man, but you can't take that life back. Maybe someone would say that suicide, someone completing suicide is the unpardonable sin because they didn't have time to ask for forgiveness, right? That must be it. What's the biggest sin in your life? Now, for some of you who are like church people, let me just get a little personal with you because I'm going to talk about some church people tonight. Maybe it's that smug sin of self-righteousness that you have that's so deceptive. It might be the most deceptive sin of all, thinking that you have no sin. 
And I know what some of you are thinking, man, all these people, these losers, these sinners at Whitewater, they got all kind of problems. I don't have any kind of sin like that. Oh my, check yourself before you wreck yourself. That's all I'm saying. But whatever sin you have when you entered this room, are any of those sins the unpardonable sin? I get asked that occasionally by people who are really afraid to die because they think this may be something that's not pardonable. Well, what is the unpardonable sin? I want to probe that in the context of did Jesus really say that? And a couple of scriptures are going to help us find the answer. I want to start first of all in 1 John chapter 5, verse number 16. Check this out. Jesus uh, is talking through John here, and he's just talking about how we can know we have eternal life. And then, in extremely, John gets to this statement. If you see any brother or sister, somebody in the family of God, commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is, here's the statement, there is a sin that leads to death. What is that sin? There is a sin, he said, that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. I mean, when you get like to that point, he says, prayer doesn't even help you. What in the world would that be? All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, admittedly, admittedly, this is a difficult passage to understand because the Bible in multiple places says there is no sin that can't be washed away by the blood of Christ. Earlier in this first little John epistle, it says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will purify us from all unrighteousness. So since the Bible is the word of God and I don't believe it contradicts itself, I have concluded that this sin that leads to death must be referring to something besides a one-time thing that you do. It's not one big sin. I believe it's a persistent pattern of rebellion and sin that so numbs your conscience over time that the person, the sinner, loses any desire to confess or repent at all. It's like this ongoing, have you ever met anybody like that? They're hard-hearted. It's an ongoing, stubborn deviation of repeated immoral behavior and cycle of activity that eventually pushes God out. It quenches the spirit and leads to this hard-heartedness and therefore eternal death. And even if you pray for those people, they're probably not going to change because there's something inside of them that's broken and hard-hearted. The kind of person I'm describing is basically the heart of the Grinch. Now, I know that it's May and it's not Christmas, but y'all know the Grinch. Before he had a heart transplant, right, before he got saved, here's how Dr. Seuss says it, all the Who's down in Whoville like Christmas a lot, but the Grinch who lived just north of Whoville did not. The Grinch hated Christmas, the whole Christmas season. Oh, please don't ask why. No one knows quite the reason. It could be perhaps that his shoes were too tight or maybe his head wasn't screwed on just right. But I think that the best reason of all may be that his heart was two sizes too small. He did eventually, as you know, in the Grinch that stole Christmas, have a a heart change. And at the end of his life, here's what it said. Well, in Whoville, they say, that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. 
But if the Grinch or you or someone that you know dies in this previous state of pushing God totally out over the lifetime in their, in their world, in their belief, I believe that they are right here in this sin that leads to death. Now, uh, the Catholic Church would refer to this passage in 1 John here to explain the distinction between mortal sins, which are sins that separate us from God and will basically consign us to hell if they're not forgiven through the confession to a priest. They categorize it between mortal sins and venial sins, which is a, a venial sin, a slighter sin that does not entail damnation of the soul. Still quite serious, but not quite the same. Now, in my humble opinion, the Bible makes no such distinction between those categories of sin, but all people of faith realize that there is a place where some people get to a sin that leads to the death that Jesus is speaking about here. And it's what he really said. Besides taking up your cross, losing your life, this is what Jesus said. And I just want to walk through Matthew chapter 12 and uh, talk a little bit about this text, because I get a lot of questions about what Jesus said here. It's in the context of him healing a guy, which is unusual. But let me jump in. Matthew chapter 12, verse number 22. It says, then they, this is the crowd, and Jesus has been arguing, by the way, with the scribes and the Pharisees about what you could and could not do on the Sabbath day. And all the religious leaders, they were all about the rules. They were not about the relationship. But they brought him, Jesus is the him, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. Now, let's just stop right there. I, I, this may take a few minutes to get through these few short verses, but I got to stop right here. They brought a demon-possessed man. There are, in my opinion, demons active in this world. There are demon-possessed people on earth, and there are demon-oppressed people on earth. There is, whether you want to realize it or not, or acknowledge it, a whole spiritual world behind this world. There is a devil. It's not Trump. It's not Comey. It's not Pelosi. I know the way some of y'all lean. But there is evil in this world. And I have seen him action. I work with the devil every day. That's not my staff. Okay, don't let that out. I'm not talking about them. I'm not talking about church members who are honorary. I work and do battle with that guy every day, and I never forget he's after me and he's after you. I do everything I can to run away from him. But there are people who invite demonic power and presence into their life. A couple years ago, I got a call at the office here from uh, two people who were attending, and they said, hey, we need you to come over our house down here on Route 50 on the river. I said, why? They said, we got a demon in our house and we want you to come over here and get him out. It was night. I'm a little bit of a fraidy cat. <laughs> I said, can you, how do you know this? They said, we see him in the window. I said, send me a picture. Have you ever wanted to see kind of what a demon looked like? They sent a picture. I looked at it. I said, all I saw was curtains. They said, no, that's a, that's a demon. I said, this sounds like a good job for an elder. You know, that's, that's what I said. I because I ain't going by myself. I said, before I come over, I'll be glad to come over and pray with you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I tried to give them some, you know, tried to give them some scriptures to, to help them. But I, uh, I said, before I come over, I got a couple other questions here for you. 
I said, can you tell me kind of what you're doing in your life, in your world, uh, besides just coming to Whitewater? They said, well, uh, uh, they said, this has happened more than once. I said, well, like what? They said, well, we've been drinking some adult beverages. That was clue number one to me. And they said, we have been watching this mo these movies like The Haunting and Paranormal Activity and stuff on which I said, here's just a thought. I want you to cut out that, like, like turn on some Chris Christian music, you know, watch uh, Home and Garden TV, I know, do, do something wholesome and cut out the adult beverages and then call me if you still see the demon. Well, they never called back and I never went. So I don't know if the demon took them over, but you can go through things in your life, activities, and not even realize that you're like opening yourself up to this demon oppression or demon possession. So if you're here, please don't email me if you think your house is demon possessed. I'll send some wonderful staff and elders over there to you. Uh, I know he does abide in our country, but in other countries too. And here we have a poor pitiful guy, a demon possessed man who's blind, he can't see, which is ironic because Jesus is gonna encounter some religious leaders who can't really see the truth. He's mute and notice it says, Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. Oh, I love this. He healed him so he could talk and see. If you are here in this service and you've got some demonic problem, oppression, possession, you got a habit, a hang up, uh, a, a hurt in your life, Jesus is the solution to any problem that you have. I, I wanna emphasize that. Here's this poor pitiful man, whether he brought it on himself or whether that demon just jumped in there, it says Jesus healed him. He is the solution to any problem you're having. I don't care what bad sin you have done. And by the way, you know, right, there's no like bad, little sins, big sins, white, black, whatever, they're heavy, all sin is sin. There is no problem you have that Jesus can't enter the picture and fix. So he heals him and he can talk and he can see. And all the people, it says, were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? In other words, the son of David was a title for the Messiah. So the, the crowd is saying like, this must be Jesus, the Messiah. But when the Pharisees heard this, heard them saying that phrase, and this was a jealous, religious people can be so jealous. When they heard this, they said, and this is such a fascinating conclusion. They said, it is only by Beelzebul or Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow, and I don't even call him Jesus, this fellow drives out demons. They recognize, they recognize that something supernatural is occurring, but they don't want to give credit to God because if they say that's from God, they got to acknowledge who Jesus is. They said this guy is casting out demons in the name of the chief of demons by that power. Now, don't miss this because this is part of what we're going to call this sin that leads to death, the unpardonable sin, and what is going to be called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, this concerns me a little bit, and I told you I was going to talk about church people, um, because we in the church can, if we're not careful, we can be the religious people in this story. 
Some of us here have a problem, so we're kind of like the demon-oppressed or demon-possessed man. Some of us are, you know, watching like the crowd. But others people in the church, I'm sad to say, are more like the religious people who criticize Jesus for going about doing good because they got a lot of rules and Jesus wasn't following their rules. So from time to time, I try to help other churches uh, besides this one and people call for advice and we'll often do surveys in these churches and because they're not growing, some of them are dying and some of the reasons they're dying are because there's a lot of rules in the church. So we can do surveys that are anonymous and some folks around me help tabulate them, and it's wonderful. We get some information that helps the pastor and the elders and the, and the church there. Well, I saved this survey right here because this one is, I've seen it more than once, sadly. Here's a survey. Don't know who said it. What is wrong with this church? And this is the church we're trying to help. That's dying. It's very small. What are, what's wrong with this church? Here's what they listed. Not sticking to the King James Version when you preach. Not having hymn books and using them. I'm already with some of y'all. Somebody said, amen. That's exactly what I think. Having people bring in their beverages to the worship service. They wouldn't like it here. Allowing people to dress in shorts or t-shirts and still be part of the actual service. Doesn't that sound like a fun church? These are churches all over America. Now, here's what's heartbreaking to me. What is the main mission of the church? To lead other people to Jesus Christ. Now, they got that right. But somewhere along the line, they got these opinions and preferences on how people should be one mixed up. So if you read the New Testament, just get a little personal. We've been doing that lately. If you read the New Testament and the people in it who sound the most like you are, self are the self-righteous ones in the story, then you're doing Christianity wrong. If you're the one that is always criticizing when God's clearly at work in some area, any church, this church or any church, I've been very careful not to criticize what God does just because they didn't heal it or do it my way. God must not be in it. Oh, that's the height of arrogance. So these guys say, this is the prince of demons. That's how Jesus is getting all his power. And then we read one of the scariest verses in all the Bible to me. Jesus knew their thoughts. <laughs> is that a little scary to you? Like he knows what you're thinking right now. Like when, when's David going to be done? I got to go to Skyline. I, 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 uh, well, he knows what you're thinking about that person next to you, that person you work with, all the sins that I listed that you are doing or thinking about doing. It's one of the scariest verses. He knows what you're thinking. He knows your motive. He can read your mind. Kind of like that little boy who was saying his bedtime prayers and all he prayed loudly in his bedroom with his mama. God, please give me a new bike. God, please give me a new bike. And his mom was next to him and said, hey, you don't have to like pray out loud, like really loud like that. God already knows what you're thinking. He said, I know, but granddad's in the next room and he's hard of hearing. <laughs> God knows what you're thinking. He knows about that. And I've been thinking about that because we come to that usually with the idea that it's scary. It could be that that could be one of the most comforting thoughts to you. That God knows what you're thinking. 
He knows your pain. He knows your pitiful condition. He knows your problems. He knows your potential. He knows how many times you've tried. He knows all this heartbreak in you. He, he knows. I don't know, and your spouse may not know, and your coworkers may know, but he knows. But Jesus knew these guys' thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. Jesus is hitting on a very uh, important piece of following Jesus and helping to build momentum in a church. Jesus is uh, stating that unity here is critical. You can't have a divided church. You can't have a divided home. You can't have a divided marriage. If it's divided against itself, it will not stand. And I know lots of people, not necessarily here in our place here, but a lot of people uh, are divisive in, in nature. They'd rather complain than contribute. And man, we got to stay on the same team because we're fighting a force greater than us. I went to see the Avengers movie the other night. You all seen it? And I haven't seen many of the other 20, so I had to get caught up by a guy. I didn't even know all the, these superheroes like that. There's a guy show up. I said to the guy, who's that guy? He said, that's Ant-Man. I said, oh, okay. Well, I didn't know. I realized after he got real small, that was Ant-Man. I didn't know all these things. And I found out some of these superheroes, they don't even like each other. They have like a history, like they had a civil war. I didn't know all this stuff. I, I got a job here. I'm busy. I don't have time. But in the theme of the movie is basically these guys agree, even though they don't like each other that much, these superheroes, they all bind together to defeat a foe uh, that's evil and bigger and badder than any of them, and they need to do it together to win. That's exactly the way it is in the church. So as the church grows, there's going to be people that are different than us. They think, they look, they act different. We got to bound together because the force after us is greater than anything in this room that's after each of us. So Jesus states that. He said, uh, no household, no city divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he said, he is divided against himself. How can this, his kingdom stand? If I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then he gives another illustration of the power of God. And I, this is so rich. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house, Jesus says, and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man and then he can plunder his house? Now, you see who the strong man is here in the story, uh, this parable, mini parable. The strong man is the devil. And Jesus comes in and ties up. The strong man. That strong man, the devil, bound this demon oppressed, possessed man. But Jesus is a stronger man and he comes into the devil's house and he ties him up. I love that. Jesus is like a superhero himself. He's got all the power. He, he's like, this may even be a little blasphemous itself as I speak about. Jesus is like Liam Neeson. Have you seen the Taken movies? I know I'm on movies tonight. I have a particular set of skills. Some of you all know what I'm talking about. He comes in and he takes that which has been kidnapped and he rescues that which he loves. Jesus kind of liked that with the strong man. Jesus is strong. I know we think of it being like a meek and mild and pitiful. Uh, uh, uh. Never underestimate the strength of Jesus Christ. And so he goes on to say this in verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. That's, pre that's pretty much what I talked about last weekend. 
and last Thursday. Whoever's not with me, you got to decide. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. And here we come to the verse you might be interested in. And so I tell you, Jesus says, so it's in this context now of people seeing Jesus heal this dude, criticizing him, saying he's not only not a good guy, he's like demon-possessed Jesus himself driving out demons. It is in that context Jesus utters this verse. So I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. But blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, Son of Man would be Jesus, will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age, which is the time Jesus lived, or in the age to come, which is now, or in the future. This is fascinating. Because Jesus says, you can say stuff about me, but don't you say something about the Holy Spirit. That's blasphemy. That will not be forgiven. And Jesus modeled this, by the way, on the cross. Even when he's dying on the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they do. Well, what in the world might this look like today in the context of our question of the unpardonable sin? I believe that the unpardonable sin is equal to, it's the same thing as blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And here's what it is according to the context of these verses. It is blasphemy of the Spirit. The unpardonable sin is attributing the work of God to the work of the devil. Now, some scholars may say that that's even impossible given that we are not physically present today to see the actual miracles of Jesus and then say that's, how, that's the devil's power doing that. But generally speaking, blasphemy is seeing the clear work of God through Jesus, him work mighty works, and then give credit to the devil. So, here's what you might like. For a thief, a murderer, an adulterer, a liar, there is forgiveness and pardon. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. When one clearly sees the powerful work of the Holy Spirit demonstrated and in spite of clear evidence still hardens his or her heart, that's when there is no hope. Because you have rejected the means of forgiveness, there is no forgiveness. This is what the Hebrew writer is talking about in Hebrews 6, verse number 4. And it's kind of written to people who've kind of been around the church deal. So the, some of the most dangerous times are when you are here in this building or you're attending a church activity, but your heart is not in it. Your body's here, but you're just kind of going through the motions, and you don't even believe it all the time. That's the most dangerous position to be in. Here's how the Hebrew writer put it. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who kind of know a little bit, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. Here's where they were, and now they're going the other way. It is impossible for them to be brought back to repentance, to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. This is a persistent, unrepentant sin that I referred to earlier 
that hardens a person's heart. So here's the main thing I want you to hear today. Because I told you I was going to tell you what the unpardonable sin is, and I just did. It is personally, persistently rejecting Jesus over over and over again, and going even beyond that, saying there is no Jesus, the devil is the one doing all that Jesus church stuff. It's a work of the devil. So if you think in this room you have committed the unpardonable sin, because some of us have done some pretty bad stuff, you likely have not. In fact, if you feel a little anxious and guilty, that's a good sign. That's because the Holy Spirit is still living and working in you. You're not past the point of no return. When you go out and mess up, and by the way, all of us are going to go do that at some point. God doesn't want you to be sinless. He died so you could be sinless. You'll never be sinless. But if you feel guilty after you sin, praise God. That means the Spirit's still alive and dynamic in your life. It's the person who sins and doesn't give a rip about it. It's the person who sinned, and there is no feeling bad. That's the person who has committed, I believe, this sin that leads to death and has blasphemed the Spirit, and they don't even care about God anymore. That's what led C.S. Lewis, who wrote Chronicles of Narnia, he said it so well. He said, there are two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, those who follow him, and to those to whom God says in eternity, who've rejected him all their life, all right then, thy will be done. You didn't want anything to do with me in earth, then I'm just going to grant you your wish for all eternity. You can stay away from me for all eternity. God never, ever runs away from someone who doesn't want him. We elect to push him out. And rather than feeling sorrowful or mourning, these folks shrug off sin and Jesus as no big deal. Sin has moved in and they're happy to let it set up shop for as long as it wants to be there. So the danger described here among the religious leaders, by the way, is this prolonged lifetime rejection of Jesus. And that's why the New Testament says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The most important part of your life is your heart. Guard it. Don't let the devil and all of the world and all of the voices affect your heart. So I can say with utmost confidence tonight, Sunday, any weekend you come, that if you're really worried about committing the unpardonable sin, you know what? I think you're good. You say, ooh, good. I can leave now. I don't even have to stay. It's not the category of sin. It's not the kind of sin. It's not the volume of sin. It's not the length of your sin that cancels grace. So listen, if you're not dead, God's not done with you. If you still got a pulse, you got a purpose. Don't let the devil tell you you've done too much not to come back. You have. Quit carrying that weight of guilt around in your life and on your soul. You're not wired that way. Now, we live in a, a city because a lot of the religious heritage that a lot of us grew up in, we're really good at that guilt. We're really good at carrying. I'm never good enough. I know you're not. That's why Jesus had to die. So if somebody asks you, what did the preacher talk about tonight? Let's review. Can I be 
Can I do something? Here's the question. Can I do something that cannot be forgiven? What would your answer be? Can I do something that cannot be forgiven? It depends. Yes and no. Yes, you can do something whereby you'll reach a point where God won't forgive you. Not because God doesn't want to, but because we don't want him to. We just harden our hearts and say, see you, God. I, want, I don't want you in my life ever. My guess is you're here in this room because that's not you. At least I hope it's not you. But watch your heart because you don't want to just be enlightened, taste the spirit, the heavenly gift, and then creep back to a worse place. So the answer is yes. Can I do something that cannot be forgiven? No. There's also an answer, no. As long as you are repentant and want to come back to God, guess what? He loves to forgive. 70 times 7. It says he'll forgive your sin as far as the east is from the west. As far as, and there is, when you get, if you think of it, east becomes west and west becomes east. It's unending once you start going around this world. So is God's forgiveness unending. It says he takes our sin, he dumps them in the sea, and he remembers them no more. You keep bringing up the sin, but God said, what sin? I think I forgave that like 28 times already. As long as you keep coming back, you're my kid. I want to help you. Let me close with this. On August 16th, 1987, Northwest Airlines Flight 225, some of y'all remember this, it crashed just after taking off from the Detroit airport, killing 155 people back in 87. One person, however, survived. A four-year-old from Tempe, Arizona named Cecilia. News accounts said when rescuers found Cecilia, they did not believe that she'd even been on the plane. Investigators first assumed that she had been a passenger in one of the cars on the highway on which the airline crashed. But when the passenger registered for the flight was checked, sure enough, there was Cecilia's name. Firemen found her still belted in her seat, which was face down, covered in blood and soot, but she was alive. She was found several feet from the body of her mother, Paula. She survived because it is believed that even as the plane was falling, her mother Paula unbuckled her own seatbelt, got in front of her daughter, and wrapped her arms and her body around her and didn't let go until the plane crashed. Nothing could separate that child from her parents' love. Not the fall, not the flames, neither height, nor depth, nor life, nor death. Does that sound familiar? Such is the love of the Savior for us. He loves you so much, even when your life is getting free fall, even though you're going to crash. He left heaven. He drew himself close to us. He covered us with the sacrifice of his own body to save us. God doesn't want anybody in this room to perish, but for all to come to a saving relationship with him. And our church exists to provide help and hope and a home for you. No matter what school you go to, no matter what sin you've committed, even if it's letting three little pigs run wild in your school, even if it's doing some of the things that you all are ashamed and have kept a secret for years in your life, Jesus specializes in forgiving even that. You can't do anything to mess up the salvation Jesus has provided for you. The devil already tried to stop it. Guess what? He didn't succeed. You're on the winning team. 
And so now we just have to put in our heart what we know in our head. And that's the challenge of what Jesus is teaching here in this passage. Did Jesus really say that? Yes, he did. And we're so excited that you can now say it too. So go and tell everybody about the unpardonable sin. Say, man, I know about this blasphemy of the Spirit. Could I tell you about it? I'm like a Bible scholar now. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this moment in our church when we're studying some of these hard statements of Jesus. Help us not to be like the religious leaders who thought they had it all figured out, but God, help us to humbly look in our hearts and say, God, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Help us to claim the confidence, the assurance that comes from following you closely, knowing God in our heart that there's nothing that can separate us from you. God, let's not let the devil tell us that we've gone so far that we can't turn around. And so, Father, for people here who need prayer, we all have some, we'll have some folks up front at, here after the service to pray and talk and encourage Maybe there's some new people here and they'll stay for that three minute after over here, Father, on my right and their left, maybe just to make themselves known. I thank you for each person that's here. May we not leave this room without knowing there is a Jesus who died on the cross for us and his love compels us now to go and tell other people about him, not to judge them, but to attribute the works of God to the work of God in Jesus. Help us, God, to be a church that preaches grace and truth together and lives out the tough sayings of Jesus and applies them in our life and in our world. Thank you for the extreme generosity here with the backpacks, the wonderful partnership we have with the Southwest schools and all the school systems that we are partnering with. Thank you, God, for them and all they do. And I pray right now that you would bless us as we leave this place. May we rest secure in your love and your power. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Hey again, thanks for joining us online today. You'll see links in the notes or the comments section to be able to let us know who you are if you're newer around here and to give generously online if you call Whitewater home. Thanks for joining us, we'll see you next time.